Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. The Congressional Budget Office recently released its updated 10-year economic forecast, predicting about a 5% jump in real GDP next year as we recover from the pandemic recession before settling back into a 2% growth mode for the rest of the decade. Now, this slow growth has become the new normal, in part because of the productivity slowdown we've seen since the early 1970s. Except for a brief surge in the late 1990s and early 2000s, productivity growth has continued to this point for almost five decades now. So if we want faster growth and faster rising living standards, something needs to change. My guest today is Nicholas Crafts. He argues that artificial intelligence may provide this change, albeit in a different way than we might expect. Nicholas is a professor of economics and economic history at the University of Warwick, where he studies economic growth, the Industrial Revolution, and the history of general purpose technologies. He recently gave a fascinating presentation to the Bank of England titled, AI as a General Purpose Technology, a Historical Perspective. Professor Crafts, welcome to the podcast. Hi. So to start out, why did we see this productivity slowdown in the early 70s? And why has it continued for so long, except for that brief surge in the late 90s, early 2000s? Well, when the productivity slowdown started in the 70s, I think the story would be that we'd had the so-called second industrial revolution in the late 19th, early 20th century that delivered us a lot of very important technological change. Eventually, those technological changes, which included electricity, the internal combustion engine, aviation, all those sorts of things, gradually started to work through their potential and we needed new things to replace them to drive productivity growth forward through technological change and i think there was a there was a gap there was a, a hiatus if you will uh, until information technology communications technology really gave productivity that boost you mentioned towards the end of the 20th century now previously we've had robert gordon on here and he's written about how America's economic growth was driven by these great inventions from the 1870s to the early 1970s. And then it just kind of petered out. So is that the whole story? Are big innovations the biggest drivers of growth and they just haven't been driving it much lately? I don't think that is quite the whole story, no. Um, my own take on economic history is that great inventions uh, the number of those I just mentioned, don't completely dominate. What's important is that you have an economy which can uh, achieve lots of small productivity improvements as well, becoming more efficient, eliminating businesses that aren't really um, pulling their weight, so to speak. And I think if we look uh, in the later 20th century, particularly the early 21st century, there's probably some reasons to think that the U.S. economy lost some of its earlier dynamism. Exactly why that might be is controversial, but the two obvious candidates are that, uh, particularly in the last 20 years or so, competition has weakened considerably. Competition's an important driver of productivity growth, and perhaps regulation has become somewhat more onerous. Um, 
the uh, so you know talking about that that period of uh, of fast growth, and most people probably would be surprised to hear it. But even the 1920s and the 1930s, even though we had a depression, 1930s are considered periods of exceptionally fast productivity growth of the work by Alexander Fields on this issue. Uh, is that all? Is that kind of a settled economic science? Why those decades saw very fast growth, and were they as growthy as what we think they were? Uh, the story about the 1920s and 1930s, I think, is it was a period of fast growth. I think the American economy actually did a little bit better after World War II, but it's within the, the boundaries, perhaps, of measurement era. So, yes, I think it is now settled that, particularly surprising to the layperson, I suspect, the 1930s was a period of very strong productivity growth. And I think some of that is the American economy getting rid during the Depression, cleansing experience, getting rid of low productivity producers. You can see it in things like automobiles. But it's also a period when research and development was pretty strong and pretty productive. So this is um, the aspect of the Second Industrial Revolution, which goes along with a more scientific approach to technological progress, uh, the heyday of the R&D lab, that kind of thing. Um, since growth dropped off so soon after the 1950s and 60s, which are considered sort of this golden age of the US economy, I wonder if the 50s and 60s maybe really weren't that productive and they were sort of living off the gains of those earlier decades. Back then we had these very high tax rates, and there wasn't a lot of foreign competition spurring efficiency. So is that golden age of the 50s and 60s a little overrated? At least that's my theory. I think in terms of performance at the time, uh, it was very good. And I, I think probably was the, the Halcyon period. Uh, I think you may be right to say that it wasn't uh, perhaps storing up as much in the way of future technological progress as one might have hoped. So, uh, yes, you can perhaps say the glass was half full or half empty, depending which perspective you take. Uh, incidentally, I think it would be fair to say that we don't entirely understand uh, the slowdown of the 70s and 80s. There clearly are some unpleasant shocks, uh, things like oil, oil prices. Oil prices, uh, Japanese uh, competition starts to grow, as I think you mentioned. Uh, and I think we possibly enter the era where measuring GDP starts to get a bit harder. Uh, your older listeners will surely remember the so-called Boskin Commission of the mid-1990s, <laughs> uh, which um, pointed out that probably inflation was not being measured very well and therefore uh, real productivity growth was, was subject to bias as well. well again, we've, you know, we've discussed this issue from time to time on the podcast. And one thing that's also come up when uh, at least you know, looking at that sort of that, that, that slowdown was that starting in the 70s, maybe late 60s, we started focusing sort of less on growth and maybe you start valuing some other things like the state of the environment. What do you make of any of the, uh, of the research sort of blaming, whether it's environmental regulations or other kinds of regulations for sort of, you know, put, you know uh, slowing down growth and maybe putting weights on the, on the legs of the economy? Yeah, I think there is some evidence that regulation was a little bit of a drag. I think it'd be difficult to say that it really accounts fully 
for the slowdown. Uh, environmental regulations are part of it, but all sorts of things which just interfere a little bit with the uh, productivity generation of the economy. Uh, one that's attempted, uh, got some attention in the recent past is the strong growth over time of occupational licensing, for example, uh, which uh, eventually starts to restrict the mobility of labor. Okay, another theory. Did we start taking fast growth for granted after the 60s? Were we so optimistic about growth that we stopped making it a key focus of policy? I think that would probably be a fair comment about, uh, say, the later 1960s and on through uh, the 1970s. It took people a while to realize that the slowdown in growth was was permanent and not just temporary, uh, temporary shocks hitting the economy. But both in this country and in the United States, it's hard to see the 1980s as still that complacent era. On the contrary, I mean, I think we're seeing uh, at that point uh, Reagan and Thatcher pushing back against the encroachment of the state, and they're doing so in in the context of feeling, ah, things are not going so well. But yet the the, uh, slow productivity growth, that has... That has persisted other than the late 90s, early uh, early 2000s. So the explanation for sort of the continuation uh, partially is sort of that we're in between waves, in, invention waves. So, that, so that's part of the explanation. I think it is, yeah. I mean, I think one could be uh, optimistic that things like artificial intelligence, robotics, uh, will improve their contribution to productivity growth in the near future. Uh, I'm not myself persuaded that all the great inventions are in the past or that R&D uh, will increasingly fail to deliver productivity improvements. But uh, I think we have passed the peak of what in Europe we would call the ICT boom. And uh, so in a sense, there's an element there part of what's going on is a lull between its major effect and the major effect perhaps of the next general purpose technology, which could easily be 10, 15 years away. Uh, it's great. So I'm glad you brought up uh, artificial intelligence. I think a lot of sort of techno-optimistic people are sort of counting on AI as giving the economy that next sort of oomph to, to faster growth, faster productivity growth. What do you see as the potential value of AI, or if you want to specify maybe machine learning or a particular kind yeah. of AI? Is it as a as the next great general purpose technology like electrification or the combustion engine? Is that the value, or is it as you've as you've been writing? Is it as a a sort of a general purpose invention that will help us sort of find? the next great ideas, which, or, or I, I suppose maybe there's value in both. I think there is value in both. Uh, I think what I was trying to do in my recent writing was not to decry the idea uh, that uh, machine learning, uh, the use of uh, AI uh, in production will be valuable. I think it will. And uh, I think we'll probably see increasing applications over time. That's the normal history of a general purpose technology. But I do think this one, Uh, is, uh, as someone said, uh, perhaps to be thought of also as the invention of a method of invention. 
uh, Joel Mokir, I think it was, who said AI might end up being the best research assistant ever. Uh, and we, we see sort of harbingers of that, um, the MIT guys discovering Hallison, the new antibiotic, using this kind of methodology, is perhaps a straw in the wind? Um, going back to Gordon's great invention theory, there's a related idea that all the low-hanging fruit has already been picked. So it's harder to find good ideas than before. You need more money and manpower in order to innovate. Could AI help us go up that ladder and get more fruit, or could it help us discover there's a lot more low-hanging fruit than what we thought, or sort of whatever you know, metaphor you prefer? <laughs> well, it could be both. But, uh, I mean, certainly there are, or should I say have been signs that the potency of research and development has been weaker in the recent past than it was in that halcyon period. It seems to take more inputs to create uh, inventions. Uh, people make their great discoveries later in life, so perhaps um, there's a, a great deal more homework needs to be done. That's one way of thinking about it. But uh, at the same time, there's an awful lot of knowledge out there, and a lot of technological progress comes from hybrid inventions, putting together two things and making uh, some new third. Uh, and searching that stock of knowledge is a very fruitful way of uh, making advances. So I think the argument might be there are more trees in the orchard than there used to be. Oh, uh, but there are better. So, much better. <laughs> there are so many trees in the orchard uh, that you and I can't scan them effectively. We need some help. And uh, the help comes, I think, potentially with things like AI. Uh, and that would be the, the big potential uh, change, the big potential advantage. And that really goes to the way I think quite a lot of economic historians think about the idea of an industrial revolution. It's that the nature of invention changes. And we, we've seen that several times in the past. Well, I, th I think that's super interesting because um, as you uh, sort of get into in, uh, in some of your recent work and a recent paper, that one way to think about the Industrial Revolution, whether it's, you know, the first, the second, the third, is as is, is looking at sort of the inventions uh, and how that affected uh, those economies. But it's also a story, again, kind of thinking about how people went about inventing things. It's also a, it's a, it's a, it's as much a story about that as well, even even going back to the initial industrial uh, revolution. I think that's right. The industrial revolution, the first industrial revolution uh, in England, uh, I think involves essentially the culmination of um, an enlightenment approach to trying to find out more about the world. It's, it's the beginnings of what we now think of as scientific method, a more systematic empirical approach to finding uh, knowledge about, about the world. And that then in turn uh, is built upon in, in a much more scientific, technologically trained world uh, in that period at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, uh, when we move through to that so-called second industrial revolution. Thomas Edison had an industrial research lab. James Watt didn't.
we've had Carl Benedict Frey on the show, and he argues that one reason we saw these great advances in the 19th century and beyond is because government allowed them to happen by actually siding with disruptive innovators, which was rare at the time. I guess my concern today is I'm not sure government will continue to be on the side of creative destruction, given all the concerns we hear about robots taking away jobs and so forth. Should we be worried? I think that is a worry. Uh, And I think it's a worry uh, partly in the context of what I referred to earlier, uh, that we are likely to become an increasingly regulated society. Uh, Environmental concerns have grown, not uh, reduced. Uh, but also, I suspect the shakeout from the current uh, virus problems uh, is probably going to be, in the UK at least, uh, a society which starts to care more about distributional issues than it has done, and a bit less about what we might call efficiency or productivity. Uh, and there is sometimes uh, a perceived conflict. And uh, I think it is important uh, the way politicians play that. But I would add and go back to something I said a few minutes ago, Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, I think a really key feature of allowing disruption to happen is competition. And if you weaken antitrust, you weaken competition policy, uh, you uh, undermine those processes. And I think there's quite a bit of evidence that that really has been the story of the United States in the last 25 years or so. Do you th- and it seems like a lot of the talk about that seems to focus on, you know, the big, the big tech companies. Do you just, you know, as, as you've seen the research, do you think it's mostly those companies or it's sort of like the rest of the, I mean, a lot of this economy is oh. housing and a lot of it's healthcare. There's a lot of sectors. And I wonder about the competition more broadly in the economy rather than just focusing on you know, Amazon or, or Google. I really do not think this is just Amazon or Google. Um, I think we're talking about uh, uh, this more general weakness in the dynamism of the American economy. We're talking about too little new entry, too few startups. Uh, We're talking about situations where uh, the market seems to respond only slowly to opportunity. Barriers to entry seem to, in one way or another, have grown. So uh, obviously there are big concerns about big tech, but I think it's more than just that. Um, I'm also concerned that because we're funneling a lot of fiscal stimulus right now, we're creating zombie companies and losing that sort of cleansing aspect of the 1930s and which is really inherent to creative destruction. Without an invisible foot kicking the failing companies out, we won't get the new ones coming in. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. It's, uh, I was focusing a moment ago on problems of entry. Uh, you're talking, I think, rightly about problems of exit. Uh, and that is partly, at least in the UK and I suspect in the US, a little bit of a side effect of uh, the interest rate policies we've had, zombie companies which at normal interest rates uh, wouldn't survive. 
But in a more European context, uh, traditionally, I think, we've had problems in allowing exit because we've tended to subsidize losers. We've tended to employ what we call industrial policies, which slow down exit. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of that in the UK in the context of people losing their jobs uh, as a result of coronavirus and government sort of trying to stop the bleeding. Um, it would be bad if the US got into that in, in the same way as, as Europe has done in the past. I think there's a temptation to look at China and to think that their bureaucrats and planners are so smart that they can manage the economy and finance just the right sectors and wonder why we don't do that here. You know, maybe we ought to be subsidizing 5G or advanced battery technology because maybe China's found a better way of doing things and we should do it that way, too. There can sometimes be cases uh, for subsidising new industries. Uh, But uh, I think one should, uh, first of all, note that China has wasted a huge amount of its investment over the last uh, 20 or 25 years. Uh, If you're investing 40% of GDP, you ought to be in some ways doing better than they have. Uh, But the thing that I would go back to seeing it from a British perspective is we used to think that governments could pick winners. We found out that losers could pick governments. And what that means, of course, is the losers come along and lobby. They are the interest groups which are more successful, generally speaking. So once you go down the path of a lot of intervention, Uh, the danger is that it ends up slowing exit rather than succeeding in promoting dynamic productivity-improving sectors. If you can pull off the trick of promoting uh, the positive part of the economy, uh, very good. But the politics of it is pretty difficult. And, And to finish up, based on what we've just talked about, can we grow an economy faster than what we've been doing it is it do you think with the right policy whether it's interventions such as i don't know more scientific scientific investment or it's removing barriers or maybe regulatory reform can we speed up technological progress such that it also speeds up productivity growth and then more broadly economic growth or is this as we should be happy with two percent growth at least in the united states going forward No, I think we could uh, hope to do a bit better than that. Um, If we're just really talking about labour productivity growth, I think it would be reasonable to think you could add half a percent to that with better policies. So two becomes two and a half. Uh, And if you are also perhaps riding the back of uh, a new general purpose technology, we might see three percent as possible. Um, I think the thing, though, that is paramount to remember is uh, productivity growth is really central to all sorts of things like government finances, simply because the US, the UK, Europe generally, just not going to have very much in the way of employment growth. Uh, So growth is going to come from labour productivity increasing, not labour inputs increasing. Yeah, I, and this is my sort of second worry. My second worry is also people sort of are more, have grown more skeptical about the value of economic growth. They feel they feel like it either it only goes to the top, and at the same, so we have growth, we're growing, fantastic, but it's only going to a certain number of people, 
and in, and in the process, we're ruining the environment. So I, I sense a lot more growth skepticism than perhaps, you know, was the case a generation ago. Yeah, I think those environmental concerns have been there for a long time, but I do think they have grown. Uh, the striking feature of the last few decades has, particularly in the United States, been trends in the distribution of income. Growth has been much less inclusive than it was, uh, say, at the time of the mid-20th century. Some of that, again, goes back to competition policy, antitrust and so on. And uh, it seems to me that that would be something to strengthen both in terms of thinking about income distribution and greater efficiency. My guest today has been Nicholas Crafts. Professor Crafts, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Jim. 